Meet the motherboard. Five lawyer moms, 13 kids, and that includes three sets of twins, and a whole lot of opinions. Hey guys, welcome, or gals, I guess I should say. Um, welcome to the motherboard. Um, today we are presenting you with a delicious snack. And this little snacky episode is going to feature um, our co-host, Juliana Neilbauer. Juliana is an outside general counsel, intellectual property, cybersecurity, and data privacy attorney for product-driven companies, industry-disrupting service providers, fast-growth companies, individual inventors, and researchers, executives, and nonprofits. So she is not busy at all. Um, she also started her career initially as a software developer and software operations professional who grew multiple successful companies to sale or mid-market size. She works as an attorney in Georgia and Maryland, including the D.C. metro area and our home here in Atlanta. So welcome, Juliana. I'm so excited to, to do this little snack with you. I have been looking forward to getting a chance to talk to you more, Whitney, ever since you um were someone who brought in outside folks of interest, leaders in the state, to our firm for different events. And I thought she is really someone who is much more than just the day-to-day practice of law. She's got a lot going on, and she is a person who cares about her community and her state. And so I can't wait to get to know you better while we, hey, talk about me a little bit. (laughs) Well, I will let our listeners know that I think that you are fabulous and a total boss lady and super inspirational and all the cool stuff you do. And every time you send us, we're talking about podcasting. Anytime you get an, an email from Juliana, whatever I'm doing in my very mundane, um, but but I love it, but mundane <laughs> litigation world, Juliana is closing deals and, you know, she is doing all these exciting things um, that, that are really exciting to hear about. So I, I feel like I'm coming to a TED Talk today and I'm, I'm really pumped about it. But um, I'm going to start first with my question. Um, so you joined uh, the partnership of Drew Eckel and Farnham in 2017 in the corporate transactions section, which is known um, at our firm for being really an innovation hub. Um, and it's been the launch of the Legal Accelerator, Accelerator Program for startup company clients. Um, did you know that you wanted to be in that kind of innovator role when you joined the firm? It's funny you say that because, um, yeah, actually I did. I was fortunate to have a very untraditional law track within firm world. And so one thing that might be worth talking about here is how you can, in fact, do that in a midsize or even large law firm. You can still, with the right partner support and right partner champion, have an untraditional track. In fact, Vivian, one of our other co-hosts on the podcast, also has an untraditional law track, but mine is unique in that I am on partner track. I'm a senior associate, so I'm on that track. The firm recognizes my value both in the immediate term and the long term as someone who could be eligible to join the partnership and be part of the ownership of the firm. And yet my um, my my job is twofold. I am here as an attorney. I have outside uh, I have outside clients and corporate clients as Whitney described. But I also provide operations support and business development support for the corporate transactions group. And I have been tasked by my partner to come in and spend what would otherwise be billable time to help organize, structure, and execute on those plans so that we can further strengthen our technology practice, our 
cyber risk, cybersecurity, our data privacy, but also just our overall transactional practice into core markets. Um, in other large firms, there's a person, might be a lawyer, might not, but who is not practicing, who would be in that role um, either directly under the management of the firm or under the marketing and business development team. And our firm, we actually are a firm that we're, we're a fancy firm in a downtown office, but we're actually very um, economical. We're very cost sensitive. We don't add a lot of um, extra costs to how we operate. And so that efficiency carries over into having the flexibility for someone like me who came to law as a second career to be able to use all of my skills in my job and, and again, have the firm recognize that and keep me on partner track. So, Juliana, that raises a question for me. I think, um, you know, historically, sort of traditionally, we were um, a civil litigation defense firm. Um, and that means that we're kind of living and dying um, by the billable hour and a certain sense of the word. Um, and, and it's changing. But I think that what you say is that you've been very successful in showing the firm the value in what might not be, you know, billed in a point one or a point two. And um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about kind of how you've gone about, you know, getting that sort of recognition because you're not your value is not going to be seen just in the number of hours or the number of dollars you've written down for, for any given year. So tell us a little bit about how you did that. Cause I think that's incredible. Oh, wow. Thanks. I'd be happy to people wanting me to talk about, you know, the nuts and bolts of my job. This is great. I think my husband's so bored of me talking about it right over, over all the years of operations work, but yeah, no, this is to me, this is such a unique firm opportunity um, to your point. How, how do you show value um, I get to be the entrepreneur. And so my value is I do log all of my time, right? Just like any other billing attorney, I have, I utilize all the categories of work in our billing system that most attorneys don't use that often. So all the different types of business development hours, all the different types of administrative time. Um, I even sometimes get pulled in to support other groups or the administration, the management of the firm, and I bill to those cost categories. And then I, there is an impetus on me, right? Because I, I have this privileged position to very carefully document with my partner what I'm doing. And I have very specific goals from within my group. And now as our firm has expanded and created a CEO role with Christy Walsh stepping in, and she's a fantastic leader in her own right. Hopefully we'll get her on to talk about being a boss mom at some point. Um, we're going to now, I'm going to have accountability also um, to the firm as a whole in preparation, I think, also for, for the justification of me being considered for partner in the future. So um, what I do is I have very specific goals. Like, for instance, um, I have milestones I need to meet. And one of those was to, to more than double the average hourly rate for everyone in my group. And what that does, I, we were able to do that within the first year of that program. And then we um, added, I think, another 30% to all of our rates across the board the next year that I was here. And um, and that's by doing things again that those business development hours go to not only negotiating rate increases with our existing clients, but also targeting new markets where clients can afford those rates and making sure that our sophisticated attorneys are being positioned properly in front of the markets that really need them and then can also afford them. We were did an assessment of our rates and they were far below market for the mid market clients that we were serving. And so it just made sense for us to get into a place where our value allowed us to work 
with the clients that we wanted to work with and that do, in fact, have additional costs. Um, and it also allows us to maintain high-quality people when we can bill them out at the proper rate. So another thing I was able to do was therefore show that there wouldn't be um, – there doesn't have to be a loss for for time that isn't spent billing if, you know, if I effectively can more than double my rate, uh, my hourly rate, then I can – offset some of that initial investment of time into operations. And then the ideal being that once I become partner, I'll have more time to work with those high-level clients at that higher rate. Our group as a whole will be stronger. Our associates all the way down to paralegals will have higher rates. And so um, when we're able to maintain not only having new markets, but also having max efficiencies in how we serve and how many clients we can serve, because we're no longer having to just let the world know we exist and how we exist and how great we are. Now we have clients being referred in both internally and externally. Then we're already positioned to really break out and, and be and show the firm that it was an investment well-made. But I want to point out too, that one of my charters for my partner was that when we were doing all this operations time and work that our group should not cost the firm a dime extra. So in other words, um, you know, that loss of 0.1 or 0.2 of hours should be more than made up by us getting bigger clients, more clients, clients that, um, and also mid-market clients where they, our rates are justified and specialized work like my cybersecurity practice, my data privacy practice, intellectual property advising, high-tech clients where um, the risk for the attorney providing the advice is actually a lot higher. So we need to make, we need to make more hourly just to offset the insurance costs, quite frankly, for those kinds of practice areas. And there's just a lot more time I have to spend keeping up with those areas of law. They're very active. And for instance, cryptocurrency, like I, you know, I have to keep up with that law. NFTs, some of your listeners will know very much what these are and others won't. And that's why you pay me, right? Because I do. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that that, I think what you're saying is, is interesting and such a good lesson. You know, I think it's something that I'm so proud of our firm for really being forward looking um, and being, innovative and visionary in our approach to things that, you know, they recognize exactly what you're saying. Um, I also think it's a good lesson for other firms, you know, to maybe think of, you know, rethink some of those kind of old school, um, you know, legal models or legal evaluation methods, because I think what we're seeing, uh, I mean, I think you could ask any lawyer at our firm and no one would doubt the incredible value that you brought um, to us. And so I think, you know, other firms could be missing out on their own Juliana and don't come for ours because we're not giving her up. <laughs> but, um, you know, you can go find your own and, you know, and you might miss her if you're if you're just focused on, you know, those sorts of, of, of recording time kind of metrics in, in the old school sense. Well, my next question was um, kind of shifting gears a little bit. You're a mom. You've got two kids under six years old. I know a little bit about that myself. Um, and you're in a marriage with a startup funder and an entrepreneur. So you guys are kind of, you know, I'm sure, sure burning the candle at both ends kind of 24 seven. Um, tell us a little bit about how you make that work. <laughs> Making it work is a good way of putting it, right? Because it's, it doesn't work automatically. It's not, it's not an instant machine. You press a button and it works. Um, like everyone, you know, I've, I'm an adult who, with kids here and I know that every relationship requires investment every day, every week, every year. 
Um, my husband is an incredible human. That's why I picked him. <laughs> and um, is, you know, a true, he's a Texan. He is a, you know, a, a gentleman and a person of character and a creative and a leader. Um, he was called the sheriff of Techville in D.C. when we were very active in the tech community because other folks feared him because he spoke the truth to power. Um, so he's a man's man and he likes his steaks and his, you know, his whiskeys and his music. And he, but he likes to take me dancing and, you know, he likes to um, support my career. And he, when he met me, even though he was five years older and advanced far beyond me because I was at the ripe age of 24 at the time, um, he said, we're peers we're equals and that's what I want. And so I think starting with a partnership where you both have the both def same definition of what you're both there for um, and what marriage is, is really important. And then you can have kids, right? And if you don't get those things lined up, like what is marriage about and what's it for? For us, it's we're together because we want to be together. And we always come back to that when we're having hard times. We say, um, we're, we got, we're together because we have great conversations and we believe in each other and want to see each other um, succeed. And we want to build a family and a world together. And the moment we stop wanting to talk to each other and are no longer interested in each other, that's when we might part ways. So far, we keep, we're still talking. So we're still together, right? Good for the kids. Um, and I think the kids actually give us more to talk about, quite frankly. So that's, key, a good partner for me at least, and having a rock kind of a partner is really important. And how could we both be, you know, how could he be a rock when we're an entrepreneur? Those people are up and down here and there this way, that way. I think, um, to that point, we actually met on a presidential campaign. And if anyone who's never been involved with politics and campaign work in particular, uh, it's a lot like startup. So we started by getting to know each other in the hectic environment of no insufficient resources, lots of people this way, that way, disorganization needing to be organized and thousands of people coming together very quickly to do something huge and then disbanding and going on their separate ways. And so it's about building, 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 making, you know, putting out emergencies, dealing with things, operationalizing, and then throwing it all away and moving on to the next thing. And I think that ethos then carried us very well into our next phase, which was in the startup world. So he started um, a couple of product companies. I then got involved with one of those. And then we started a consulting business together for startup companies and software companies. I had my own career in software companies that grew and that were more corporate, but different, larger or smaller. But along the way, we kind of always approach, we always felt at home in fast growth companies because it reminded us, I think, of the campaign work. And when we built our company together, it was reminded us of the campaign work we did together. And so I think we always look at, like, even now when I came to law and, like, firm life, which a lot of people talk about being long hours and stressful, mm -hmm. like, this feels like campaign work. This feels like, you know, <laughs> long hours and doing the impossible and doing it again the next day after you're tired. It kind of feels like campaign work. It feels like startup culture. And so um, in a certain sense, it's great because I'm not in charge of everything. All I'm in charge of is my client base. Wow, that sounds yeah. great. You know, I don't have to put out all the fires this week, just just mine. It's great. Yeah, so, I, what you're saying is just really interesting because I feel like that's one thing. I mean, I think the five of us in some ways are very similar and in some ways are very different. Um, but I think one thing we all have in common is that we have a very supportive spouse. And yes. I don't think 
you know, if you're talking about having it all, if you're talking about being a mom and working, I don't think that you get those things if you don't have a partner who is, you know, supportive of you or a spouse, you know, a spouse or a partner who's really rooting for your career and who, you know, views your career as equal to their career. Um, and so I think it's so, it's so sweet to hear you do talk about your husband that way. Um, and I think that that just reminds me kind of of that commonality between us. So we've talked a little bit about, um, well, Whitney, I want to, I want to pause you in there. I think you could do it if you had a family member who filled that role. So if you had a mom or an aunt or a cousin, I don't want to, I don't want to actually leave it with, I'm not sure that you'd have to have, um, you know, a romantic partner be the person. And I don't want to tell those who might think, you know, they're at the part of life where they don't even see that on the horizon. I wouldn't want to discourage them. Um, and I think more and more women are, and men too, are thinking about having kids on their own. And I would want to encourage you to keep innovating in that space. And just, it does take multiple people though, right? We talk about it takes a village. It takes a village. It takes great people who are accountable along with you and who care about your kids and love them with you. And that is a whole constellation of people beyond my husband and yours and our spouses. Um, I also want to point out too, that, Part of what I think we as as women, you know, our, our moms often forget is we get we get stressed out sometimes because it takes a village and we are so appreciative of all the support we do have. And then we forget that it takes a village, but you have to feed the village, too. And so we don't even count the hours that we spend um, trying to take care, because once others are taking care and helping us, we're also accountable to them in a certain way. Right. Even the staff that you might have. Um, we're part of an ecosystem of people who are all tied together to make sure that these kids in this next generation are taken care of. And um, and there's a weight both ways that comes with that. So I thank everyone else. And I but I also re- recognize that, you know, I can't just be a jerk it, or I could, but it'll make my life a lot harder and I'll have a lot more turnover in my marriages and my staff and my you know teachers and all those things. Right. Like <laughs> it'll be a lot more work. So um, I think it goes both ways, and maybe there's some more to think about on that over time, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess along those lines, this kind of this my next question was would feed into that. Um, if you could change one thing in the world to make it easier for the future boss lawyer moms, um, what would it be? Oh, I've got some specific thoughts on this because yeah I've gotten this question a few times when I was CEO of I'm not CEO I apologize Ooh. when I was CEO of my own company but when I was COO of ad hoc which um, became a mid-market software company we had oh uh, close to 200 people when I liquidated and um, moved on to my next thing uh, I got asked this question you know how do, how do we make how do we um, make it better for other women executives and now women lawyers right who want to become partners um, one thing that we did at Ad Hoc and I think was really important and I saw make a difference. We implemented a parental leave program that was as like our one at the firm was full paid three months of leave and also allowed people to accelerate their PTO so they could get an extra month of paid leave. So four months of paid leave. And we were at that point only a 20 person, 30 person organization. And so that was a pretty aggressive thing, especially since most of our employees were men at the time. I'm not going to say it was because I was in that role and had a voice, but I think it didn't hurt. And, <laughs> but having that policy of parental leave, um, very often we see that the men don't take it or they take a week or two. 
um, Alexis Ohanian of Reddit came out around that time and said, men need to take leave. They need to take full leave. And I started to promote that culture in our, our firm too. And I encouraged the men who were taking leave to take full leave. And I think we need firms, companies to actively promote a culture like that and to show examples in leadership where men take leave. Because if men aren't taking leave, then they're not offsetting at home for their spouses, the women. And so then women are always the ones have to take the leave. And we want it sometimes, but sometimes um, some women want to go back sooner. And they might not even have the ability to do that because someone really needs to be there for that for a full first three months or however much leave you have. And if we're going to allow women the choice of how much leave they want to take and all that, how they want to space out their leave or their PTO, then we've got to have men empowered uh, culturally to take their full leave too. I, I totally agree with you. We were really, I had twins um, back in July and we were very lucky um, in that my husband through his job um, works, unfortunately a lot of extra hours and overtimes because in overtime, because it's emergency management based. But because of that, he had a lot of comp leave built up. And so he was able to take 12 weeks um, after the twins arrived, which was actually not just, you know, this nice perk, but it was really vital to our survival at that point because I had newborn twins and a three-year-old. And I just couldn't, I mean, I literally just couldn't have done, I mean, I guess I would have because I think that we rise to the occasion, but it would have been just extraordinary difficult to have that at home by myself. And so I think um, we were so grateful to have that, but I also think having that time at home was good for lots of reasons. With our first son, he went right back to work after two weeks and I was there by myself and it's a lot. (laughs) I mean, you also have a young baby. I mean, it's a lot, you know, you've just given birth and you're trying to, you know, you're not sleeping and you're working essentially when you've got a newborn, you're working 24 hours, you know, a day with no end in sight. And so, I think it was really important to have that help because it kind of helps you, you know, get your get yourself back together so that when the time comes for you to go back to work, you've had a minute to kind of breathe and it hasn't been, you know, hair yes. on fire, baby care for 12 weeks. And then like, boom, welcome back to being a lawyer. Right. <laughs> so. And the everyone's like, oh, you just had a break. Yeah, and everybody thinks you've been on vacation for 12 weeks when actually you were just like glad to brush your teeth and take a shower. So, um, in, in other, in certain, in certain countries, that kind of vacation would be called torture under the Geneva Convention. You know, lack of sleep deprivation, loud noises for, you know, that you can't stop, turn off, lights off and on at weird hours of the day. It, it would not be, yeah, it would not be considered a vacation. And so, yeah, I agree. I think we have to have men take it. And then, also, one thing we did was we implemented the flexible work. We had complete remote company in 2016, and we were all over the country. We used Zoom. We used Slack. We used all of these tools back in the day before it was cool, um, or at least, you know, for a pandemic, right, happened, and it worked. We actually had higher productivity than some of our peers, and we had to stop. We were billing 40-hour max per day with uh, government contracts, and we had to tell people that they were overbilling because mm-hmm. they were getting too much work done, and they couldn't bill more than 40 or per, per week, I should say. So um, I've seen it work, and I think if after the pandemic we are really thoughtful about how we can still maintain productivity and maintain flexible work locations and flexible work schedule, so when people get work done, so if you need people to come to the office, fine. Maybe do some more shifting. Let's get rid of people caught in the daily commute. Let's, it's good for the infrastructure of counties and cities, 
to spread out commute times, but it also allows for parents to be there for appointments without having to ask for PTO, um, without being penalized for that, and still get all their work done, or be the one at pickup, or be the one at drop-off, or be the one that day that does both if need be. Um, and still, as long as we're adults and we get our work done, does it really matter when we get it done? Um, as long as we, there's enough predictability across your team. So things like that, I think we really need to be thoughtful about. I don't know if that would work in your group, though. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think we're kind of already doing that. I, well, and maybe it's because in my group in particular, um, there are so many of us who are working parents and sort of various stages of that parenthood. So it looks different for everybody. But, um, you know, I think everybody has demands on their time. Um, and I think one thing the pandemic has given us is sort of increased flexibility that was already, that was always there, but maybe we didn't realize it was there or we worried that it was not, you know, that if we took advantage of it, that that would be looked, you know, negatively, um, be looked at negatively. And I think now it's just kind of built into the process. Um, well, tell us a little bit. How do you think we can make more Julianas who grew up to be great in their legal practice, be totally in it in their personal lives and still, you know, remain good human beings? Because at the end of the day, I think, um, you know, even with my kids, when, when my husband and I talk about that, the thing is most important to me is that they grow up to be good people, you know, whatever they I don't care what they want to do. If I, and I don't care, you know, if they're successful, I want them to be nice people. Yeah. Yeah. Cause if you, yeah, everything else builds from that in our house, you know, the golden rule is number two, I think be a good person is number one. And I think they're tied together. Yeah. Yes. I totally agree. I, I liked that question. <laughs> yeah. I do try to, I, I, how to be a good person. Right. So, um, I think that I have learned in the pandemic as a mom, something that one of my lawyer friends from undergrad who went straight through from undergrad to law and law was not her second career. Like it's mine told me a decade ago, she said before I had kids and she was just had hers. She said the most important thing in parenting, the real secret is love. She said, I know this sounds silly because we're analytical. We're hyper active. Like, how do we maximize? How do we do this? How do we do everything for our kids? She said, it comes down to it's 90% love and 10% everything else you do. And if you get the love thing right and share with your kids how much you love them and that that's unconditional, you're going to be so much far ahead on everything else because it just opens your child up like a flower when they feel that love. And then they're open to the sunshine. They're open to the rain. They're going to pull nutrients out of the soil. They're going to grow as high and far and beautifully as they can, right? And they're going to be able to weather the winds and the storms. And I think for myself, um, I'm going, I'm approaching life. I'm going to be entering my forties soon and I am going to approach this decade, um, with love. I think my thirties, I approached it with be tough and my twenties, it was be smart. And so I'm carrying the be smart and the be tough with me, but I'm also going to be more as loving as possible. And I mean that in, I'm going to love, I'm, I'm going to continue to be passionate about my work. It's easy to give that up when you're tired, Right. And I'm not going to give it up. I am fighting for it. I have hobbies that I love that feed into my work because I, I'm going to stay in love with my work. I'm going to bring love to my spouse, even on tough days. And it's, I'm saying this out loud as like to hold me accountable listeners, you know, <laughs> hold me accountable because it's not always easy <laughs> 
to like have that at the end of the day. Poor guy, you know, like he, he gets, I have to give the love to the kids. I give it the love. And then, you know, we get 15 minutes in the day to like catch up. Right. But I'm going to, going to do that. And then also for ourselves, right. And our friends for my super, I'm just going to like, I'm going to emphasize that. Cause I think if I start there, it'll be a lot easier to be a better person. And it'll be a lot easier to be a better lawyer to my clients. And it'll be a lot easier to be a better mom. I appreciate what you're saying so much because I think I kind of had a similar um, realization really after, you know, we talked about the post I made when I came back for maternity leave and the, and the reaction that I got um, and how, you know, encouraging that was and how surprising it was to me that I needed that. Although I feel like it shouldn't have be, it shouldn't be because everybody needs encouragement in their life. Um, but I took from that, you know, that you never know how the smallest gesture of, you know, kindness can really, you know, make someone's day or, you know, to give them a lift up when they needed it. And I think especially given, you know, the pandemic, but all of the other, um, you know, insanity that was 2020. I don't think there's anyone in the world who doesn't need people to be a little nicer to them. And so I felt like in out, you know, in my field in litigation, it's very adversarial. Everything is adversarial. Everything is like, you know, you versus me and I'm going to take it and I'm going to win. And so I said, you know, if I can, I'm going to do my best this next year to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. So even if maybe you're not super nice to me or you're a little bit rude or short with me, I'm going to assume that you're having a bad day and that, you know, you're actually a really nice person and that that's just a one off and, you know, give you a little grace. And I think, you know, I do that in part because I need grace myself sometimes with three kids, three and under and working full time. I'm not always the best version of me. And so, I, you know, I said the least I can do is is give people a little extra space to make mistakes. So I think what you're saying is exactly right. You know, that if we're a little maybe just a little kinder and that doesn't mean we're not tough. You know, that doesn't mean I'm yep. not going to, you know, come in, you know, with the same killer instinct and I'm going to try, you know, to do my best for my clients in a case. But it means where we can, let's just be a little, you know, let's be a little nicer. Let's not find conflict where we don't have to have it. Correct. Yeah. To your point, accountability, right? So I think the, <laughs> next, the next session, the next uh, episode I'm leading is about um is about imposter syndrome and how I actually have a very different viewpoint on this than I think most women and most moms do. And it's about, it's coming from a tough place, quite frankly, because, um, you know, I, I think it being loving is also loving yourself and loving the people and prioritizing your clients and your family and your, your tribe and knowing who your tribe is. And here's one thing as a teaser to that for everybody that I would give now, which is, don't forget that the big difference I have seen in the culture that traditional cis women bring to work versus men, and I work with a lot of men in a lot of rooms, right? I'm rarely the uh, more than one other woman is in the room with me in any kind of deal situation or industry situation, right? And so, and certainly not in a leadership seat. Um, men are look at work as a battle, right? It is a it is a venue of combat. And they expect combat, even if they don't want it there, even if they're not seeking combat, they expect combat can happen at any time. It is not a safe space. It is a space of of performance competition. And that expectation changes how they perform and behave. Right. Um, and it's a place of survival for your family, because what you do in work de- determines how much you're compensated and whether you succeed or fail and what how much you're going to 
drag back to your cave to feed your family and your tribe with. And so um, I think sometimes what makes women, men roll their eyes at women in the workplace and even podcasts like ours is that we bring to it this expectation that work is a place that we all have a right to be and a right to exist in and a right to, to benefit from. We all have a right to a career. And I think that men kind of sense that, you know what? No, you got to go fight for it. You got to go fight for it. You got to fight to be in the room and whatever else. And that's very controversial. I think women are changing that by existing in these spaces and we can create more organizations and places and industry cultures that change that. But I think both are true at the same time, even though they can be in conflict. And I think that when you merge the two philosophies, you get something quite powerful and that could be unstoppable something that people feel passionate about and believe in. And we see this in work culture organizations where they have like, we have a culture of not being evil, like Google in the, in the nineties, people loved that. Wait, wait, I can go there and I can be part of the tribe that's doing good and still win in the battlefield. That's what everybody wants. So a combination of being passionate and love for your tribe and what your work, but also like knives out, I'm going to fight and I'm going to kill if I need to. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to win. I'm going to take that mountain. And that's, that's probably a more honest assessment of where I fall. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it kind of goes back to, um, you know, the, the adage, don't mistake my kindness for weakness because they really aren't the same thing. You can be oh. kind and tough at the same time. So, okay. Well, I want to, I want to round us out on a little bit of a lighter note. Um, tell us one book, one album and one pastime that you'd want to take with you on a deserted Island. What one. Okay. So, <laughs> I am notorious for being a playlist exchanger with all my new friends. So Whitney, in fact, if you're on Spotify, I, I request that I get at least one playlist link from you so I can like learn some new music that you listen to. But as a result, I really do try to listen to everything. And um, so I, I tell you, it's going to be one of these. I'm going to bring something by Dan Deacon or Sufjan Stevens. I, I really love Tool. Sorry. Sorry to all the 35 <laughs> year old dads. Like I'm going to be there in the mosh pit. Um, but one of my favorite albums of all time that got me through high school was Golden Hum by Remy Zero, which is a little known alt uh, indie rock band. Uh, but most recently, I'm just like totally loving on anything that Little Sims drops. So she's she's up there, too. And then book. The one book that I keep coming back to that I think I'm going to be reading my whole life is Girdle Escher Bach by Douglas Hofstadler. So if anybody doesn't know what that is, get ready to have your mind blown. It explains it explains everything. It will help you beat the stock market and build an app to beat the stock market. It will help you understand where artificial intelligence came, comes from. It will teach you about paradox. It will, it's math for non-math people. It's philosophy for non-philosophers. It is a 700, 800 page tome of just brilliance. And I'm, I pick it up and learn something every time. And then also my friend Jody Callahan's book that I have been helping him edit for about 15 years. I cannot wait to bring that with me when it's finally finished and it's like the next great American novel. So Whitney, one thing you didn't ask me about that I would need to survive on that desert island is some encouragement. And so I would bring any of Rob Welch's emails, my supervising partner at the firm, because he is such a supporter at work and uh, it always pumps me up. My pastime is I would probably be setting up an antenna because I'm an amateur radio licensed um, ham, right? So I have KB3TAG. So I'd probably fashion my own antenna and um, participate in the Technica hackathon as a 
white hat hacker, even from my little island, even before I asked for help to be saved. I would actually want to be maybe give me like a weekend there off from having to be a mom. <laughs> well, I will be going immediately to download um, the Golden Hum album because I do not know that album. So I'll be going to check that out. I, I can't say that I am necessarily um, quite as big of a tool fan as you might be. <laughs> However, I will. I was a, a dancer in my prior life and one of our dance instructors had an instrumental version of tool songs that was like classical instruments. And it was amazing. I mean, it was it was really it was really shocking how beautiful it was and just so different in contrast to, you know, the, the rock um, vibe. So anyways, but with that said. That wraps it up. We, we've met Juliana. We know a little bit more about her and, um, you guys can be on the lookout for her imposter syndrome episode, which I am really, really excited, um, for us to record. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Whitney. Thank you for listening to the motherboard. Thank you for listening to the motherboard. Thank you for listening to the motherboard. I, the Tony Mothers, never bored.